Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and normally on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups, except this episode is going to be a little bit different, as this is a bonus episode. For this episode, we're going to be talking about brand and marketing and how B2C founders should think about these components as it relates to their businesses. Our guest today to talk about this is Matt Hurst, who is a partner at West. West is a venture studio, a team of market and brand experts with investor discipline. Since 2011, West has partnered with some of the world's most innovative companies and founders to maximize their opportunity and make impact, including Impossible Burger, GoFundMe, Square, and Twitter. Matt is a partner at West and joined West four years ago after serving the global head of brand experience at Google. Prior to Google, Matt spent 10 years at Red Bull as head of sports events and culture and the director of culture marketing. I had such a great time speaking with Matt. So without further ado, here he is. Matt, thank you so much for being here on a Friday. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm very pleased that it's Friday too. Tell me a little bit about your background. What attracted you to brand and marketing in the first place? Well, what attracted me initially was actually probably a, a massive sort of distaste for advertising and marketing in general. I, I remember growing up thinking that you know the, the amount of money that was spent trying to convince me to buy stuff on TV ads. And someone at some point said, listen, you can either complain about it or you can go in and try and fix it. And so that, that was really what got me started in marketing. And I was, I think, after being an analyst and a, and a researcher for, for a good amount of time, you know, working on big sort of CPG companies in the UK, found the spiritual hub of Red Bull, which for me was an, an opportunity to do stuff that we didn't feel like we were selling. We were building a huge brand. We were building a movement. It was stuff that people loved. And we made sure people loved it. And, and it, it had a lovely great effect on making the, the drinks business you know, really, really valuable as well. And that was that was 10 years of my career working in sports and music and really jobs that shouldn't really exist, but thanks to that company, they did. And just being very creative and doing a lot of things ourselves. And later on, then transitioned to America, first of all, to Los Angeles, and then and then to, then to Google. Um, figured that Google, of all the companies in the world, probably would, you know, resemble a little bit sort of culturally and spiritually, you know, what, what I found and loved at Red Bull. And actually what I found there was that it was a very, very different set of people objectives, ways of running businesses. And, you know, you're not going to say that it's, it's definitely, you know, it's not none of those things are wrong. It was a very, very successful business, but it's not necessarily because of its marketing and branding. It's, it's because of its engineering brilliance. And so that, that, that was my journey and, 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 you know, learned a ton about, you know, what it takes to build great brands and also what it takes and, and what a lot of brands and a lot of companies often often get wrong too. And that's really, that's really kind of kept me on my journey as I've as I sort of joined and continue to drive the work we do here at West. When we spoke before, you know, we had a conversation, brand strategy versus marketing. And and I would love to know like how you think about the two and maybe some differences in being at Red Bull that that Google Yeah, I mean it's 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 more I think it's more than just those two. We often talk about at West the free headed marketing monster, which is you know, quite simply, it's, it's brand marketing, it's, it's growth marketing, and then it's product marketing. And those sorts of, those, that, those definitions, it's very rare that you have one marketer that will do all of those three very well. Very rare. And it's rare even that you have a marketer that will do two of those. My, you know, many marketers aren't simply aware that there's that difference. They just grow up doing one of those things and think that's how it all works. But the, the reality is for businesses that are in startup or scale-up mode, 
you know you have to interchangeably switch between those three on a, on a on a on an almost daily basis and so for the for the benefit of those who don't really understand that you know you think product marketing is understanding how to get different parts of the products and the digital product working more engagement growth marketing is characterized sort of more traditionally around how you think about facebook ads uh, and google ads and that's more kind of quantifiable programmatic digital media stuff and then brand marketing sits up to the alongside those three which is a lot more kind of nebulous and a lot harder to quantify but you know one of the things that is pretty well known and we talk about quite a lot here is that you know it's very rarely the best product that wins the category it's always the best brand um, but really what goes into creating those brands and, and how to do brand marketing really well is quite misunderstood outside of the, of the large you know, the big companies, the big CPG companies, um, the big, you know, the Googles of the world who have budgets, who have agencies and have a lot of time and space and, and don't necessarily need to have directly quantifiable metrics, you know, on some of those things. And so, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the, 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 the gamut. And what, you know, what we have to do here at West is, is help businesses through those early days switch between them, understand when they need to use either of those three, but more specifically as well, from a cultural and leadership perspective, understand where the limits of those three are for doing the sorts of things that you need them to do. Talk to me a little bit about the differences in skill sets that founders should be aware of when they're hiring, you know, uh, someone that comes from a brand management background from, let's say, a Google or a large company. Um, rather versus someone that is versus someone that maybe has a brand strategy uh, background. Like, how do you how do you think about those two? Well, it's it's actually the the biggest the biggest change that you're going to look for there is 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 big to small, and and what those skill sets are that come with it. I think that there are great growth and and product marketers and brand marketers at places like Google. But the thing that the advice to founders, and we see this a lot, um, because you know what we generally enter at a time when you know, companies are at an inflection point. They've promised the board something that they want to deliver with their latest round of funding, and they've got to make it work. And they, they will hire a, a marketing lead. It'll be a CMO or a VP of marketing. But, and, and then often the names of where those people have worked are a lot more sort of seductive than a real drill down into the skill sets that they've got. And so, you know, our, our CMO has just come from Airbnb or from, or from Facebook. Sounds brilliant in board presentations, but really you have to be as a founder, quite really aware of what it is that they, they did at those places. And, and there's some really amazing talented people at all of those businesses, but equally you, you want to understand, but also they, those businesses, they quite obviously come with a, with a massive, massive amount of support networks in terms of agencies and KPIs and planning and, and, a, and a big safety net around those things. And, and, and a lot of those, you know, people would, you know, feel at the right time to leave those bigger companies and go and do something slightly more hands-on, something more exciting, something with more growth potential. But you know, it's if for those individuals who are doing it, they have to be have to understand that they're going to a radically different environment where they don't have the teams around them, they don't have a lot of the expectations or even planning timelines that, that, that are true of the bigger companies, and they have to have a real hard look at what it is that has made them successful in the past. And so, you know, there, there are lots of people who are fantastic brand marketers who then go to startups and to them, every product, every problem that that startup may have from a marketing perspective looks like a brand marketing problem. When actually it's not, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And really it's about understanding what you've made yourself good at and being very, very explicit as to whether what you are naturally good at is what's going to solve the problem in front of you. 
and 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 that that takes a real knack for understanding problems and understanding startups and also help you know one of the big things is educating the person who hired you the founder they have a certain expectation about what that person is going to do when they get there uh, and that might not, be, might not be right either you know first time founders even second time founders who've changed industries you know what they would expect from a marketing lead uh, is maybe what they what they need, they need and so what we see a lot is there's a moment of translation from where you've come from and what you, what you now need to do and, and not a lot of people don't survive that because it's just a massive leap but for those that do it's a really rewarding experience because you know working in startups is it's exciting and it's challenging for all the right reasons but in the longer term for your career like having been through that and having made that leap that translation leap from big to small it just makes you leaner uh, and fitter and, and stronger for, for all the right reasons. Wow, there's a number of great insights and, and takeaways I think from that. Uh, you know, one thing that 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 got me thinking that I really hadn't thought about before because we've had a number of, of investors on the show and talk about that founding team and and really the founder's ability to recruit, right? And and looking at that and being able to pull some of the some people maybe from the Googles and the Facebooks of the world to come and join them on this you know, almost irrational decision in, in becoming a, you know, a first employee or something. But what's interesting about what you, what you said is they come from these incredible companies. What are their actual skill sets and what's their experience working with startups when, as you said, you don't have a budget, you don't have these big budgets as you do working for a large tech firm. And you really are building something from, from scratch. You're not kind of relying already on the brand that's already there. That, that, that's totally right. I mean, I think many marketers particularly brand marketers, will be pretty adept at translating the brand platform, the brand identity, the brand MO, how that brand exists in the world. There'll be documents, there'll be guidelines, there'll be, and really your job as a brand marketer at a large company is to be smart and strategic about adapting that brand to serve the needs of your direct project. It's quite a different thing to come into a business where there is, there is no template, there is no blueprint, there's, and, and potentially there's a heavy, heavier than, than you'd like kind of culture, engineering culture, you know, very, very data-led, a sense of where the product is, but lots of pivots. And then to be the person that actually architects that sort of very first brand. We call them sort of minimum viable brands because in, in one sense you have to also be prepared to pivot that as you go as well. But constructing that from scratch and then educating how the wider organization uses that thing that hadn't existed before is just a completely different skill set. And it's for the right people, it's a, it's a wonderful challenge and a, and a huge privilege. And it's part of the work that we do here a lot about is helping founders and their teams understand that North Star. But if you, if you haven't done it before and, and, you're, not, and, you're, and you're more used to translating, then, it, then it's, it's definitely new and, and potentially quite hard stuff. What are some questions that founders should be asking themselves? Because as you said, it, there could be lots of pivots, right? So I'd imagine you, you would need a brand, a brand that's somewhat flexible, right? At the very early stages, like how do you, what are some questions that founders should be asking themselves? Okay, so there's a couple of things there. And I just wanted to pick up on the language a little bit used because it's very tempting to think of brand as brand identity. And that sort of snaps to, you know, a, a thought of colors and logos and word marks and stuff. Of course, that's critical, right? That's a lot of how you're recognized. But, but brand, you know, the way that we think about it and the way that it's best thought about, brand is the sum total of every interaction that you have with a, with a company. So, you know, just to put it in blunt terms, no amount of, you know, shitty customer services calls is going to be offset by a snazzy marketing campaign, right? So you have to think about it in every single 
interaction. And so therefore, really, from a founder's perspective, if you are out in the world, if you are even in beta, you've got a brand, right? You may not be managing it actively, but what you are trying to do in the world and how you are trying to do it is out there, right? That's the basis of your product. And so it's important that, that you know, the, the brand thinking is really applied from the inception. And for many founders, it is. I mean, what are the steps that founders would take or the questions they could ask? Well, these, they're reasonably simple to ask. I mean, those are, why are you doing it? What are you doing? How are you doing it? And who for, right? Why, what, how, who? So the reason to ask, they're often brutally hard to answer. And we, you know, a standard piece of work that we do is getting all of the senior team of any big startup, big or small, and have them ask, answer those questions in isolation. And we've done 50, 60 of these so far. Not even the best teams have ever managed to get close to the answers that their colleagues have given. So, you know, and so, and unless you are aligned on like, why are we even doing this and how are we doing it, then the rest of it, you know, that your team isn't really kind of pulling in the same direction. And if that isn't happening, then you can probably expect that the brand that your user or consumer is seeing has a little level of mix as well. And so start with those questions and then start to apply that lens across everything that you do. Now, so, and so we were talking to one of our portfolio companies yesterday, which is, yeah, it's really hard to build that brand template, but it's actually in the application of it where the secret is. You know, if, if you had a, a strong brand document that you mostly subscribe to, it should be in daily use. It should be used to define, you know, not just how you show up and, and the words that you use to describe what you do, but the kind of the people you hire and the culture that you want to create. And it should, you know, it should, it should guide product decisions. It should guide investment decisions. It should guide the type, guide the type of people you take money off as, as, as venture capitalists and board members. It, it, you know, it, and used well, it should be almost a, a sort of a referee in, in daily meetings where you kind of interpret it the way that you think it should be interpreted, but it doesn't change. It just becomes this backbone that you then use as a company. That's black belt brand management. What we see, what we could all do in the, in the, in the shorter term is just a better understanding of what it is. Because I think a lot of the time, particularly in the startup world, there is a, a sense that the product is king, engineers will solve the problem, and we're gonna have such a great product that's gonna solve such a great problem that really, any additional thinking around brand and investment is, is not going to be for us. We think we invested in it, it's not going to be for us. We think we're just going to have a great, you know, amazing runaway success. And, you know, even in all the histories of the biggest successes of the world, where the, you know, the engineering culture was what won it for, you know, Google or Apple, you know, it does, they leave out a lot of the fact that without the brand and without being tethered to a very strong sense of brand, it maybe wouldn't have turned out that way. So it's a long way around of answering the question, but I mean, ultimately, I think it comes down with a better understanding that brand is, is, is not, not a logo and it's, 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 it's everything that you put in front of a user, big, small, or, or, you know, or otherwise. So how do you think about when it comes to brand and marketing? How do you think about data versus trusting your gut? That's a, that's a, that's a massive question. And sitting, you know, as we do in San Francisco, you know, proximity to Silicon Valley and most of our portfolio companies have technical backgrounds. Data is is king, right? And 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 because you're now able to do make you know you're now able to see the world with a sense of data and and what that describes, what that tells you about the opportunity. And data, the more data we've got, the more it de-risks the opportunities in front of us. And that isn't just true of startups, of course. It's also with with the you know with as much data as we have in the world, you know, it's it's increasingly like the it's the it's it's what it's the what makes the call 
in, in boardrooms and in meetings to make decisions about it, right? But that's really, a, it's quite, it's, it's, it's intoxicating, but it's dangerous. You know, we, just because you can measure it doesn't mean to say that you're measuring A, the right thing, or B, what you're seeing is truth. And, and, and data exists to reflect backwards. It's what people are doing currently. It doesn't identify unmet needs. It doesn't, it doesn't allow you to see around corners. Even with all the clever machine learning, it still doesn't tell you really what humans are doing irrationally. And, and so the job is, the marketer's job, is to be really aware of where data is limiting. Um, and as, as leaders in general as well, it's important that you reference data for the right stuff, but you don't become beholden to it as a business and as a culture. And, and it's really difficult to do that. I mean, it's really difficult to do that because it's, of course, no one wants to go out on a limb and, and say stuff that might end up not working. And so it's very easy to still use data as the, the backup for the whole time. Um, and then you move to things like looking at things like Facebook advertising and performance marketing in general, which is a very, very you know, data-led, programmatic approach to reaching customers. You know, that's also taught a new generation of marketers that marketing should be easily quantifiable. You know, you put dollars in and you get a cost of acquisition out. And over a lifetime, that's your LTV. And there you go. But actually, that isn't really what creates brands. It isn't really what creates emotion. We often used to say at Red Bull, you know, we, we, where we honestly didn't have a culture of data, even though I was the data guy for a bit of it, we didn't have a data culture. The thing was, you know, all the best things in life can't be measured. Like, you can't measure love. You can't measure friendship. And in fact, even the act of trying to measure those things means that you probably won't end up with love or friendship. And if you think about what you're trying to do as a, from a brand perspective, is you're trying to engender that emotional reaction and that love from consumers. And so you can go in with the best data in the world to guide your aim, but, but really you have to know where that data and its, its usefulness should start and stop. And, and that's difficult in the culture that we've got because it's just, again, just so easy to go back to, you know, if we can't measure it, then it doesn't exist. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem that we deal with quite a lot here at West. When people talk about the value of a brand or, you know, the brand as an asset, how do you, how do you I guess, think about that and measure it? Or do you just take the approach of you can't measure it? Yeah. <laughs> I remember getting an email from a client that had that exact question, which is like, I'm trying to justify us having a brand to our CMO. Do you have any metrics? And I just shot... Shot an email back with the words Coca-Cola, Nike, and some others, and that was it. Like I can, you can, you can find clever studies that you know where, you know, MBAs will use a huge algorithmic formula to try and put a value on brand, but like you don't need to measure it to understand that fundamentally it works, right? And and the question then becomes is well, how much should we invest in it, and how do we know if it's working? That's tricky as well. Because by the time a brand works or is actually working, it takes time. You know? this, it, it is an emotional response. It's not direct call and response. It's not something that you can easily measure by clicks and in normal engagement measures. Although I'm sure there are people that will sell you a service that shows you can. But what you're trying to do is invest in, is invest in the emotional attachment to something which goes above and beyond its functional benefit. It's the emotional benefit of the brand. And that's something which is kind of hard to understand. The other thing, this is a tricky thing, and particularly when you're a founder and you're bootstrapping, is that our concern is that building a brand has somehow become conflated with 
the need to hire a really expensive agency because you know like the ad agencies they'll 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 build a brand in three big channels and they'll need you to spend media money and they'll need you to spend money on creative etc um and that'll do the job it'll do some of the job i mean but it's just the, the numbers that then they start to talk about in terms of building and then maintaining that brand are just off the table really from for many of the startups even though startups are very happy invest, investing their money in engineering and not so much in in marketing you know the the way that agencies and media is set up it's just cost prohibitive it's a high enough barrier to entry the feel the thing that we try and do is well there's two there's two things there's one which is to persuade people that they haven't really got to spend money on 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 media and as soon as you are spending money on like big money on media is you go into a sales mode which means the fundamental product isn't doing the job that it shouldn't it should have done in the first place our goal is to get your product sufficiently differentiated to tell a brand new story that has its own it has its own pull it's it's, it's interesting and it's brilliant by its own merits not because someone has then turned the product into an ad but i think there's a bigger issue here as well that we are trying to address at west which is you know the the, the global agency businesses which you know serve a majority a sort of blue chip fortune 500 base they were built for scale and to scale you needed to build teams in the way that you you know the industrial approach built any team you know which is very specialist skill sets coming together on teams. I remember being at, at, at Google, having sitting in front of an agency for the very first time in my career. I didn't, we just didn't use them at Red Bull. And I had in front of me a strategist, a, a junior strategist, a creative director, a copywriter, an account person, a digital something. And I was just really confused because I was, I just, was I not meant to ask strategic questions of the creative person and, and vice versa? And, and ultimately, that's the same way that McDonald's builds their restaurants. There's a ketchup person, there's a burger person, right? But, and that's what drives the price up. That's what drives, you know, the, the, that's what makes a lot of the really good creative brand and, and thinking cost prohibitive. At West, our job is to shrink those six or seven people down into two or three, but really make sure that, and it's not, it's hard to find people, but, but it's really important to try and drive the overall overhead of our company down uh, on the studio side so that we can offer these really differentiating opportunities to our portfolio companies at a, at a, at a cost that they can afford. Um, and, for, and for people that work at West, the talent that we have here, you know, you don't ever find someone that's able to do all of those things, but there is a level of fatigue of just being one thing in an agency that for a lot of people, they want to break out, they want to diversify and they want to play a more sort of multifaceted role. Um, and that really is something that really helps our portfolios portfolio companies build brands but also create value by having the brand that our LP base and our investors and their investors like right and so it's a bit it's, it's it's part art and part science but it really speaks to the power of the brand in building up actual value for the for the startups um, as they go on their journeys I brought this up when I on, on a previous episode as well. Uh, it reminds me when I was in elementary school or middle school and we had a science fair. We got Coke, Pepsi, and a number of the kind of private label, you know, Coke copies out there, like the Safeway version and the Giant version, covered up all the labels and just poured them out to everyone. Everyone had to guess which one was, you know, Coke or Pepsi, and they taste, you know, fairly similar. Everyone actually preferred the private label brands. But Mike, you, but the, point, the point there is, is obviously it's a, it's a pretty kind of tried and true. That was the, the Pepsi challenge, right, back in the day. but. But ultimately, what you're talking about there is something which wasn't true in Silicon Valley, but is increasingly true, which was, you know, rewind five, 10 years ago, 
there was one company solving a problem that no one else was thinking about. And today, because of the venture environment, because of the, I think, overall sort of ascendancy of startups and startup culture, on any given day, there are three or four companies in, in, in fairly similar spaces. You know what I mean? As soon as there was an Uber, there was a Lyft. And that's true of so many areas. And so the need to bring brand on as a reason to differentiate and really tell your story and really hope to lead the category and define the category earlier is, is so important because that, that Coca-Cola, that commodity Coca-Cola challenge is increasingly true here. And I feel like, I feel like in, the, in the context of understanding brand and using it in those ways, it was, a, it was a fingers in the ears sort of thing for a long time. But now there's a generation of founders that are kind of wise to it. And I think it's a, it's a sign that the overall startup ecosystem is, is maturing in its approach to, to, to needing a brand. But, but again, done so on a way that's commensurate with revenue or no revenue or just a bootstrapping approach in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that it's, it's interesting too because I was talking with Kiva at uh, Selva Ventures and most of his, his um, investments are in CBG pro uh, products. We were talking about first move, mover advantage and, and what I said is I feel like for, for maybe like non-technology companies that first mover is almost more key than for technology companies because because uh, really a lot of it is the brand. Well, we, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's it embodies something that we ask all of our founders, which is, are you here to build your own category or chase someone else's? And there's a there's brilliant businesses that do a super job of kind of me tooing products and they build it better, faster, cheaper. And, and then they, and they kind of, they, they figure out a way to take still market share from the, from the incumbents. From our side, it's, it's way more interesting to have companies that are brave new world that are establishing a category of their own that see the world differently and tell that story. Because for exactly the points that you've talked through, you know, that first mover advantage comes with a level of cachet and, and earned media. And just it's just, a, it's just a very interesting and kind of almost, it's, it shows a level of brilliance. It's, it's easier to copy than it is to create. And so I, I would definitely agree with that on a, on a brand and category level. It's a lot easier to 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 show how you're different to a customer rather than saying we're actually a better product than what you're currently buying. Well, there's two nice points there. One is obviously we talked about earlier on, which is the best product never wins. Like technically, the best product doesn't win. It's the best brand that does. And but but also like just being different is is a really that's how to build a brand in a cost effective way. Like some of the things that we did at Red Bull, which had the most lasting effect on people. Um, than consumers were the hidden touches. It was the things that they found and thought that they alone had found them. You know, it's, it's the Easter egg mentality. There's, there's lots of different ways that you can really build a level of difference by just having a bit more of attention to detail. And those things aren't big, but in the context of people loving you and talking about you and developing a personal relationship, they go a long, long way. So how do you think about the brand agency ecosystem and if a startup is looking to hire an agency, what are some of the questions that they should be asking themselves? I think the, the biggest question is, is, you know, what are we looking for in, in what do we actually need? It's become the agency landscape is a very crowded one. And the general pitch is we were, we're here to solve your problems, whatever they are. But, you know, from a, from a founder's perspective, if, if the core team are kind of like a, a digital strategist and a designer and a copywriter, then chances are whatever their solution is, going to be will look a lot like a website right and it feels like what's really needed in the context of startups is some and this is the, i think this is the kind of founding ethos of west which is people that can actually identify 
the problems that, that, as they really are. Because sometimes when you're looking for an agency, it's because you think you need marketing uh, or you need market support or brand support. And if you need that, it's probably because something else has stopped working or it wasn't working the way that you thought it was going to be. So you'd go off and find an agency and they will basically um, tell you they can fix it and they'll help you do something and they'll spend some money. When we go into companies because their marketing hasn't, isn't working quite as well, their cost of acquisition has gone up or isn't where it wants us to be. Yes, we can look at marketing, but you know, a lot of startups are messy and a lot of things can go wrong and or not go quite right. So the, maybe the product was too early uh, or too late, or maybe they're, you know, money constraints, maybe they're capitalized wrong. Maybe there's people internally that have fallen out and they can't reconcile that. And that's having a detrimental effect on the team. And like, until you fix those things, until you're really clear and, and very explicit that some of those things are at play, then you shouldn't really be spending any money on, on the marketing piece because it's just, it's just going to be filling a leaky bucket. So I feel like the first thing is, to, is for founders to be really honest with themselves about the sources of the problem and why they need to uh, get hold of a marketing agency or a brand agency or whatever it is they're looking for. And that kind of leads into the next question is, what is it you are looking for? Because the agency world, again, is, is so, seems to be so frothy that there's lots of integration and lots of companies that do lots of things. Uh, the reality is that they're probably really good at one thing and they've bolted other things on, which they, they make them sound good and, and, and that make their clients feel like they're getting value. And that, okay, but it's just worth knowing. Everyone's trying to do the best they can. But again, it's a bit like hiring a marketer. It's very important you understand what the DNA of that marketer or being an agency is. And then I think the other thing is, it's just as a piece of due diligence, which is one of the things that we always really persuade our founders to do. And this, and this is for founders that maybe haven't ever hired an agency before, or is, is get references. An agency should have a long line of glowing advocates for them, or a good, a good medium-sized line of glowing advocates for them, which would be more than happy to speak on their behalf. And so that is critical because the types of money that you end up spending on agencies and marketing, it gets quite serious quite fast. And what you don't want to do is expose yourself as a founder to some of those risks if you don't have to. So it's totally within your remit and you're sort of your, uh, you're totally allowed to ask those questions. And if something smells funny, then you should just trust your gut. But, and, and therefore, it can be quite a protracted process, but the time invested in finding the right people is, is always, is always, it always pays off in the end. And the other thing as well, this is not true of all agencies, but it's true of the broader agency model, which was that they, 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 want, they want you to spend money. You know, success for an agency who has their own payroll and their own overhead is to try and keep the relationship with you to be as long-term and as profitable as possible. I mean, that's what any business wants, right? And therefore, it's easy to become beholden to what those agencies do. Um, our job at West is because of our, because of our unique model. We, we try and get in and out as fast as possible and hire our replacements. Our, it, will be, it will be a disaster for us if we're an agency for anyone. But that's not true of most agencies. And so therefore, you just have to go into that, understanding that that's the case, and then being really specific about what it is that you think that you need and being quite disciplined that there are things that sound great and be really cool at some point to have, you know, as part of your broader mix, but, um, but just, just don't necessarily need to happen today. So, so you know, that's, that's just to keep your know, eyes and ears open and, and using agencies to, to be sort of special ops and do great stuff, but also 
make sure that you're, they're not hanging around and, and then you're not becoming over-reliant on them as a, as a team or as a culture. Everyone in agency land has just turned this off and thinks I'm, thinks I'm an idiot now. But I, we have to work on, we, it's, we have to work on the behalf of the founders and be responsible towards them, what, what their needs are. Because if they go away, because they run out of money, then it's bad for everyone, right? So that's, that's a, that's a no-win situation. You worked with several CBG companies that started out as digitally native, and it seems like now there's so many DTC CPG companies, and it's the easiest time to build a brand. How do you think about today's landscape when it comes to brand? Is this is this the best of times or the worst of times to build a CPG brand? Well, that's a that's a that's a big question. So I'll try and navigate that. You know, on one hand, it's the best time in the world to be to build a DTC company, right? Because, you know, you can't have failed to notice that kind of corporate innovation and sort of successful new product launches for big companies are pretty few and far between these days. You know, I used to work in innovation, you know, helping innovation teams. And you'd spend nine months getting a, just to get a, a colder beer, or even maybe more than nine months, and that's just continued to be true. So, innovation by acquisition, and the I guess the growing expectation that new stuff and disruptive stuff will necessarily be developed and come from outside of the business is a good thing because it means that there's money moved in, money moved into sort of venture arms and acquisition arms, um, and then from a founder's perspective, of course, it's also great time because you know with all sorts of models and you know getting your product built getting a virtual shop using facebook and instagram ads to start your get your, build your customer base and a range of different payment solutions it's all the pizza like it's like building a building a business from lego pieces it's it's fantastic and and really it's um it's a very very good time for the entrepreneur it's a very empowering time for the entrepreneur with all that ease, it's, meant, it's just meant that the direct-to-consumer landscape has just become really busy. Um, and it's almost this, you know, it's almost become a cliche of the last four to five years of startup culture, which was, I'm going to build the Warby Parker of X or the, you know, and, and, it's, and it's great. But some of, those, some of those attempts to build those businesses are wonderful, sorely needed, and truly original. And there's others that are just a bit more cynical and they're a little bit, they don't really need to exist. And as a, as a consequence, it, it, it muddies the water for the great ones. And that's okay. That's the element of competition. But, but really, you know, there will come a time when people start to fatigue about this sort of stuff. And, and that's not going to do well unless you've, because that's not going to be great for either the investors or the entrepreneurs that have really backed some businesses that haven't made it across the transom. Now, of course, the big, the big thing as well, the big opportunity for someone is actually, because I don't think there's any shortage of, of, of great businesses out there that are direct to consumer. And there's certainly no shortage of customers and consumers that want something new and different and crafted and, you know, original. But it's how to join those two up without resorting to some of the big retail platforms, right? The, the, you know, the Amazons of the world, but also any other digital online pieces. Brilliant, because I offer a, a great opportunity to aggregate, con, uh, aggregate products and help discovery and really drive down acquisition costs for for the for this for the, the product and the brand but you lose a lot in doing so as well and i feel like that what's needed now is to is another almost platform or way to connect this incredible amount of sole operator entrepreneurs with a genuine consumer thirst for their products i would say so if you want if you want to start it mike then 
then you can come to us for some funding and some advice. <laughs> <laughs> That's an opportunity for one of our listeners. Please, pl- please contact us, right? That one's for free. Yeah, that, you can have that exactly. one. Exactly. <laughs> but you have to go build it. I love to also hear about your due diligence process and, you know, how you're evaluating opportunities at West. West is a, I'll just explain a bit about West and I can talk about how, um, how it works. West has always been around kind of almost in stealth for a long time just basically uh, doing going to go to market work for startups that gets them up the growth curve. And, and, and really, as we've sort of alluded to, using a range of different market creation techniques that, that, and, and, and brand techniques and everything else that helps you know, entrepreneurial and innovative businesses get up the growth curve. And, and through rounds of funding, to telling the right stories to their investors and, and, and their board, et cetera. We, we always often describe ourselves as strategists and creators with an investor mindset which is kind of a, a three things that don't often go together in any given business, but they work really well in the context of where we sit. And we, so we, we do a lot of studio work and then we also invest in companies that we like the look of. So our due diligence really is if a founder has come to us, then chances are they have self-selected because they understand that this game will not simply be won and lost or by virtue of their great idea and the engineering team that's building it, right? So already by finding us, by being open to a conversation about brand, They've, they've got a foot in the door with us. But then the piece that, that we work through is actually is, is short to medium-term engagements where we f- try and figure out how to get them up the growth curve, right? We will do a range of different things between the 15 or so of us that work here. There isn't really any one capability in the market and brand playbook that we can't do at a world-class level. And so we have to deploy our team to try and help unlock that growth for our, our partners and then so and what's really that is about is that is ultimately our due diligence phase we get to see the snazzy decks and the you know the the, the great two by two matrix with them sitting in the uncontested space and the, the double unicorn valuation with the graph up to the right but only when you spend three or four months with that team really going through their problem really going through the product understanding what it is that drives them and how they are thinking about their business today and in the future and some of the ways they tackle their problems only then do you really see the team and from our side from an lp's perspective that's a vantage point that isn't true of almost any other venture capital firm in silicon valley or beyond they have to do a lot of due diligence but it's largely on the strength of that great deck our job then you know we will engage with you know i know 30 40 companies a year in the studio we will probably invest in one in five i would say and there's no hard and fast metric but at that point we're investing because we like the product we like the team we believe in the market we know that what we do from a brand and marketing and you know market creation perspective has got legs that therefore is a uh, a reason for us to, to, to deploy our capital so it's a very very um different model but one that really wholeheartedly puts a ton of value in the power of a brand and you know in the context of changing you know, creating a product that hasn't existed before to change behavior, you know, the classic product market fit side, it's testament to there being power that you actually have to cultivate and nurture a market for people to, for people's behaviors to change. You can't just sling something at them and expect a cultural revolution to start. What's, what's one thing that you would change when it came to the perception of brand? Brand is everything that you do as a company. It's not a bolt on at the end. It's not a logo. And there are brand identity shops that would, you know, that's, it's a language thing at some level. But even the founder speaking at 
you know, their first fundraised or speaking to their very first angel investor. The brand has started, my friend, like it or not, right? And, and it's just so critical to understand that. And so the sooner that you, you don't need to necessarily invest in brand stuff, and I'm going to be blunt and say things like advertising and snazzy logos and you know, big corporate mission statements and branded fleeces from your, from your offsites. But you do need to have a very shrewd understanding that, like it or not, you're putting it out there in the world. And the sooner that you can, the sooner you can be aware of that and use it to your advantage, just as a tethered north star, right, for how you show up and what you do, and more critically, what you don't do, is is the chance that you're really going to make the brand thing work for you. Well, even the, the feeling that I used to have at Google, and I'm sure this is maybe I was happy to speak for myself on this, which is. The, the engineering team would create these amazing products and then towards, you know, sort of at the end of the day, pass it to the marketing department to make some marketing for it. And of course, you know, great. We can definitely make a YouTube video which explains why you should download this free thing. But ultimately, what's problem is it solving? What's the insight? Where's the, where's the consumer in the middle of this thing? And unless you've got someone that is representing that consumer in the market in that process, you're going to have to bolt on something at the end of it, which is going to be a mixed message. And so making someone that represents that brand and consumer piece so far up the product flow and the chain of development is critical. And it's easy to think that you know, engineers will have that, and some of the best will, but it's a great piece of discipline to get into for founders because you're always asking what the market will respond to as, a problem, as opposed to, it's a, it's, a, it's a demand mindset rather than a supply mindset. That makes a lot of sense. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I've picked up a book uh, called Alchemy, um, written by, I think it was the executive chairman of something like, something like Ogilvy, I think it is. And it's, it's, it's a behavioral economics book written by an advertising guy. And I thought that was warning signs for me because, you know, at, at its heart, like, you know, behavioral economics can just be a cluster of ideas that don't seem to make sense. And isn't it crazy that they don't make sense? Aren't humans irrational? But the point of this book, and I think it fits really well with this, with this conversation, is, is that actually, if you just use logic and data to sort of solve problems, you'll get to a very logical answer, but it won't be a brilliant answer, right? So if, if you, and if you, and this is what most people will do, they'll take a problem and they'll, They'll extrapolate and iterate on it and go, well, and our, our, through our frameworks and our structures, here is our argument and it's got us to this point. And at which point they'll get a resounding round of applause because it intuitively makes sense to everyone. It's gotten to a good place and they won't lose their jobs because it makes sense. But his argument in a lot of these books was actually it's the stuff that didn't make sense at all that ended up being brilliant. And therefore, data, has only got, data and logic has only got a limited role to play in the creation of truly standout stuff. And it really got me, really, really got me thinking. And so then the, the logical question is then, okay, so if data isn't gonna help me, what is? And you have to read the book because it's, it's, it's very entertaining. But I think my, my understanding is that just being really aware of analogs in science and in nature and in culture and using those as guides as much as data and logic is the way that it seems to work the best. And that, that's okay with me. I think that's something that West has done intuitively for a long time. 
And it was just great to read it in the context of this book. So that's, that's called Alchemy. I'll certainly have to check out that, that book, Alchemy. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders when it comes to brand? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just that the brand is the sum total of every single interaction. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway here is that, is that and, it, and, it's, and it, it, start, it starts with them and their ability to, to be able to shepherd that through. But suddenly, if you map the end-to-end -end consumer journey of every time anyone's experienced anything with your company, then suddenly you start to see where the gaps have been uh, the whole time. And those were opportunities to create moments of delight and really have your brand speak. I, I absolutely agree. Matt, this has been simply terrific. Thanks so much for taking the time on a Friday. It's been my pleasure. It's been, uh, it's been great to get some things off my chest. And, uh, and thanks for the thoughtful questions. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure speaking with Matt, and I really appreciate him taking the time. I would say follow Matt on Twitter, but he hasn't posted anything since 2017. If you're a founder and work on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on this show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, folks.